Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Bert Zipperer, a member of Madison Teachers Incorporated Retirees. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. And I'm Victoria Gutierrez, a member of SEIU Healthcare Wisconsin. This week, we continue our coverage with an update on the John Deere and Kellogg strikes and learn about a union drive at Starbucks in Buffalo. We also get on-the-ground coverage of the Poor People's Campaign action, calling out Senator Ron Johnson and celebrate Apprenticeship Week. We learn about a new membership program for Worker Justice Wisconsin, hear about an area tradition, the holiday fantasy and lights, and share the latest COVID report and more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. This week, the Poor People's Campaign lets Senator Ron Johnson know that politicians in Washington can't ignore working people. Keith Steffen reports. Late Wednesday morning, 23 people gathered near the local Madison office of U.S. Senator Ron Johnson to demand that he and his Senate colleagues not only pass but expand the social welfare provisions of President Joe Biden's Build Back Better legislation. Although a bipartisan infrastructure bill was recently passed in Washington, funding for programs that would directly help low-income and working people are still held up. Even after being drastically scaled back, the Build Back Better provisions are opposed by some Democrats and universally opposed by Republicans like Senator Johnson. The action near Johnson's office was part of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign Moral Witness Wednesday, Economic Investment for the People Initiative, which was held at state capitals across the country. Reverend R.A. Douglas, tri-chair of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign and pastor of First Christian Church of Janesville, describes the campaign. The Poor People's Campaign is a moral fusion movement that crosses historic lines of division, such as race, geography, ethnicity, and generation, to create, as Reverend Dr. King said, a strength that is compelling that the government cannot elude our demands. Across the country, we are mobilizing, organizing, registering, and educating the 140 million poor and low-income people and people of conscience to build power because we know that we are on the right side of history. Kevin Solomon, a member of the Coordinating Committee of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign, listed some positive provisions of the current proposed Build Back Better legislation. Some of the things that are important, first of all, that it gives the government the ability to control and negotiate drug prices. That's huge for working families. The expanding Medicaid will help serve millions of people across this country and this state. Family child tax credit is really important for giving working class people a break and ensuring that children have a chance to grow up. While pushing for passage of the current Build Back Better legislation, speakers were clear that much more was needed for working people. Jason Ribeiro is a member of RISE, which organizes for food, housing, and economic security for students, and a member of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign. 
He is a UW Madison junior studying biology and psychology and described going without food and housing as a student from a low-income background. He called for legislative support for students. Tuition should be free for all people and we should support right. students to be yeah. able to focus on their classes yes. while they are in school. Yeah. Free tuition. We literally saw it was possible and saw that it could be added into the budget. Now, many of the supports for students have been removed from the Build Back Better bill, including significantly reducing the original expansion of the Pell Grant that Same. I and other students depend on. We need people to do these jobs. We need engineers. We need teachers, nurses, and psychiatrists yes. like That's I right. plan. Woohoo! Ribeiro is from an immigrant family and decries the removal of immigration reform measures from the proposed legislation. I also want to talk today about the immigration provisions that are in this bill. Like the funding for higher education, the proposals have been shrunken and beaten back over and over again. Growing up, my mom had no choice but to work 11 hours a day. In the Poor People's Campaign, we are demanding full citizenship immediately for all 11 million undocumented people. Pam Williams is a student at Milwaukee Area Technical College, a mother of a young child, and a member of RISE and the African American Roundtable. She noted that racial justice educational provisions were removed from the current proposed legislation. Black students owe an average of 25000 more in loan debt. And coming from families where you have to choose who gets to go to college, settle for college debt years after graduation, or simply settle for a less expensive college, we have been denied the equal opportunity for education that our ancestors diligently fought for. Yes. Sierra Fox was there from Wisconsin Fight for 15, the Service Employees International Union supported effort to raise the minimum wage to $15 across the country. Fox was disappointed that a raise in the minimum wage was dropped from the current legislation. We know that $7.25 is not a living wage. It's not a wage that you can survive off of. Wisconsinites are struggling. Can't nobody survive off of that. So we as the Fight for 15, we're going to stand in solidarity with the Poor People's Campaign. That was Sierra Fox of Wisconsin Fight for 15 on Wednesday near U.S. Senator Ron Johnson's Madison office at the Economic Investment for the People initiative of the Poor People's Campaign. The Poor People's Campaign is planning a national march in Washington for June 18, 2022. For Labor Radio, I'm Keith Steffen. After rejecting a new tentative agreement last week, members of the United Auto Workers continuing to hold the picket line against their employer. Labor Radio's Sean Hagerup reports. The largest work stoppage currently taking place across the country is giving no indications that it is time to let up. Instead, John Deere employees represented by the United Auto Workers are holding out for a better offer. For the second time in a month, 10,000 workers at John Deere stunned both the company and the union leadership November 2nd by rejecting a tentative agreement. Workers at the farm equipment manufacturer remain on strike. Company and union negotiators met again yesterday for the first time since the deal was voted down. The agreement included immediate 10% raises, double what was in the first tentative agreement, plus two more 5% raises and 3% lump sum payments during the six-year contract. It killed the third tier Deere had proposed in the first agreement, preserving the option of a traditional pension for all new hires that workers had lost in the last contract. And it boosted the existing pensions and added retirement bonuses. To sweeten the deal, Deere offered an $8,500 ratification bonus. In contrast to the vote on the first tentative agreement in October, last week's ratification vote varied between locals. Five of nine locals covered by the master agreement voted yes, with some locals returning margins of approval as high as 65%. The most robust no votes came from the union's largest deer locals, both located in Iowa. Local 838 in the town of Waterloo voted 71% no, 
and Local 94 in Dubuque voted 63% no. No voters gave varied rationales for their disapproval. In Waterloo, obtaining pre-97 benefits for all workers was a major concern during the contract reading period. At Harvester Local 865 in East Moline, Illinois, which also rejected the contract by 55%. The focus was more on broken grievance procedures and language around the KIP, which is a complicated piece rate formula that determines bonuses. In the wake of the tentative agreement's defeat, locals have maintained their round-the-clock picket lines. Shannon Olson, an employee at the Waterloo plant, organized action that went above and beyond the pickets outside of his plant, according to a report by Labor Notes. Olson had voted no on the contract, as did 71% of the members of Local 838, which is the largest Deer local. Immediately after the vote, he began organizing an informational picket at Deer's corporate headquarters, the Glass Palace in Moline, not waiting for the official blessing from UAW leaders. Quote, I'm trying to turn people from pointing fingers at each other and take them fingers and point them back at the company, Olson told Labor Notes in that report. Members had rallied at the Glass Palace in mid-September, in the wake of the initial strike authorization vote. There, they held signs that said post-retirement healthcare and we aren't Volvo. The UAW strike at Volvo's Virginia truck plant earlier this year is now on many members' minds. Since it ended after the union brought a tentative agreement that had just been voted down to members for a second vote days later, after the company relabeled it a, quote, last, best, and final offer. Olson's hope was to bring those messages back to Deer headquarters. He printed flyers and went to picket lines across Waterloo and asked members of other locals to do the same. Quote, this isn't about that guy voted no, this guy voted yes. I feel the company attacked us, Olson told Labor Notes. Quote, the fact that they try to say this is our last offer no matter what, that is a threat against these 10,000 workers and their families. 100 members joined the November 8th picket, including members from each of the eight UAW locals at Deer in Iowa and Illinois. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Apprenticeship Week starts off on Monday with the slogan, It's 2021. Apprenticeships are for everyone. National Apprenticeship Week runs from November 15th through the 22nd. According to the Department of Labor, seven years ago, the National Apprenticeship Week began as a celebration of ways apprenticeships help workers earn while they learn. Unions, industry, education, and government leaders use this event to work towards advancing racial and gender equity and in supporting underserved communities. I spoke with Lisa Goodman, business agent for the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or IBEW Local 159, who further describes the week-long event. Apprenticeship Week is a great opportunity for a lot of different apprenticeships to show off their stuff. Obviously, I can speak quite a bit to this building trades construction. There are also a really wide wealth of different apprenticeships. There's barber, cosmetology, and manufacturing, and all kinds of different areas of apprenticeship. So I don't want people to think that it's just a narrow thing. Goodman describes what will be happening during the week in the Madison area. One place that you can see a lot of what's going on is the Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development. You can see a calendar they have on there, and it just gives you a listing of some of the apprenticeship week events that are going on. As an example, there's going to be a virtual roundtable featuring different apprentices in the trades being hosted by WRTP Big Step on November 15th at 4.30. Should be a great example of just different apprentices' experiences. And for anybody who's curious about becoming an apprentice or just curious about what happens in the trades, you'll have a chance to learn quite a bit there. Also happening in our area is uh, an apprenticeship 
Career Day Fair, Tuesday, November 16th, all day at the Labor Temple. And then there's a series of the trades that are having open houses, the training center tours, and all of that is on that Wisconsin DWD apprenticeship calendar. If you go and just Google WRTP Big Step Madison, they post quite a few posts on there and see events announced on there as well. One of the stated goals for the week is to help improve gender and racial equality. The number of women and people of color in the trades continues to be relatively low compared with the general population. We have a good number of women in our local. I would say we've got 50 or so women out of 1,200 active members. Compared to other trades, that's pretty good. Obviously, we would love to see more as far as people of color as well, 3 or 4% perhaps. Goodman encourages people to check out the week's events. If you've ever just thought to yourself, I don't know what I'd like to be when I grow up, a lot of folks in the trades have felt the same way. If you've never considered the trades, but you're curious to reinvent yourself, I think it's very much worth just giving it a look. If you like to work with your hands, if you like to see the product of your work at the end of the day, there's no better feeling than you go into a room, you run some pipe, you pull some wire, you hang some light fixtures. And at the end of the day, when you wire up those lights and you flick that switch and the lights go on, that's that payoff moment where that's the sort of reward of being in the trades. It's 2021. Apprenticeship is for everyone. That was Lisa Goodman, business manager with IBEW Local 159. I'm Ellen LaLazerne for Labor Radio. Next, Greg Jabaski reports on what's new at Worker Justice Wisconsin. Since its origins in 1999 as the Interfaith Coalition for Worker Justice of South Central Wisconsin, Worker Justice Wisconsin has worked to defend, expand, and publicize the legal rights of workers, including undocumented and immigrant workers. Recently, Worker Justice Wisconsin announced, quote, We will officially launch our worker membership program in February 2022 with the clear mandate to empower Latinx and immigrant workers to lead WJW's organizing efforts well into the future. Kristen Taylor, the Worker Center Manager at Workers Justice, described the organization's new path. We're pivoting our direction that we're moving in, and we're really trying to focus more on collective worker power and organizing. We're trying to set up different ways that workers can connect with each other and support each other, get to know each other, network. Labor Radio was speaking to Taylor on Thursday, October 21st at the Madison Labor Temple. This was the first of what Worker Justice hopes to be a continuing series of get-togethers for workers to meet and discuss what is happening in their lives, says Taylor. We invited every worker that has a current ongoing case with us or that has come to us and successfully closed out a case in the past. We're planning to build these meetings. We have our doors open starting at 5 p.m. for workers to come in, enjoy some food. We just have the safe spot available for them to network and eat some food and learn about different ways that workers across the United States are organizing and making their workplaces better. Jesus Gutierrez is a former worker at Mod Pizza in Madison. His employer tried to use his undocumented status to refuse and pay for 72 hours worked, and he went to workers' justice. Taylor describes part of the long process that followed for Gutierrez. So we said, well, you know, it doesn't matter. You allowed him to work. You know, it's your responsibility as the employer to check authorization. And if you let him work, you still have to pay him the wages. I mean, come on. So where's this check? She said, well, let me reach out to corporate. Can you send that in an email? And so I did. And then they weren't contacting us. We never heard back from them. I ended up having to help him file a labor standards complaint with the Department of Workforce Development. We went through that whole long, tedious process of trying to prove that he was owed the wages. Gutierrez explains what finally happened. 
We took them to the courts. My case took uh, around one year, and the judge favored me. In fact, Gutierrez received double wages from the employer as part of the settlement. Kelly describes what you can do if you're a worker who may need help or just want to get in touch with other workers. Anybody who is having a problem at work, was injured at work, feels like they weren't paid correctly, discriminated against, or anybody just wanting to organize in general can just contact us and we can schedule you in to meet with one of our organizers. We are moving towards being a membership organization, so we would require membership and that you also participate in a class to learn about your rights. It's a know your rights orientation. Then after the orientation, we schedule you in with one of our organizers. Kaylor describes Worker Justice's new regular monthly get-togethers. They'll be offered every third Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. here at the Madison Labor Temple. That was Kristen Taylor of Worker Justice Wisconsin. And the third Thursday this month, coming right up on Thursday, November 18th, all working people and those fighting for worker justice, union and non-union, are invited to attend. Spanish and English speakers will be there. Call ahead if additional translation help is needed. Please call ahead now if you plan to attend and have child care needs. For more info or to request translation of child care needs, leave a message at 608-255-0376 or email info at workerjustice.org. The website is workerjustice.org. Again, the second Worker Justice Wisconsin get-together is this Thursday, November 18th at 5 p.m. at the Labor Temple, 1602 South Park Street in Madison. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jaboski. Kellogg's has escalated their efforts to stifle union activity outside of their factories. Reporter Sean Hagerup has more on the strike's most recent events. The strike against the Kellogg Company, producer of cereal brands including Frosted Flakes and Apple Jacks, has run into new hurdles as the company filed a lawsuit against union members on the picket line this week. The company filed the complaint against bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and Green Miller's local 50G in Omaha on Thursday alleging that picketing workers are blocking entrances to its cereal plant and intimidating replacement workers as they enter. Filing such complaints is a tactic commonly employed by companies to break a union's ability to strike. Overall, the strike includes roughly 1,400 workers from four plants in Battle Creek, Michigan, Omaha, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Memphis, Tennessee. Two days of contract talks earlier this month failed to produce an agreement satisfactory to the bargaining team. Earlier this week, Kellogg's launched a PR campaign trying to sell workers on its latest offer because the union declined to put the deal up to a vote. But the company said Thursday that its offer to the union had now expired and no additional talks have been scheduled. The president of BCTGM Local 50G said in a statement, quote, many battles have been fought and won in the dead of winter. This is no exception. BCTGM Local 50G will hold the line for a fair and equitable contract for all of our brothers and sisters, end quote. In a statement yesterday, the BCTGM International Union indicated, quote, Kellogg's continues to insist on takeaways. The company came to the table insisting that there will only be an agreement if the union accepts the company's proposal exactly as it has been written. The company's proposal was filled with conditions and terms as to what was acceptable to Kellogg's. These terms and conditions are unacceptable to our members, end quote. Earlier this year, about 600 food workers also with the BCTGM went on strike at a Frito-Lay plant in Topeka, Kansas, and 1,000 others walked off the job at five Nabisco plants across the U.S. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. 
This year marks the 35th year that the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or IBEW Local 159, has joined with the Electrical Contractors Association, the Electric Group, to provide the Madison community the holiday fantasy in lights at Olin Park. Lights go on tomorrow, Saturday, starting at 4.45 p.m., and will run until January 2nd, 2022. Labor Radio's Ellen LaLuzerne spoke with Sue Blue, IBEW Local 159 business manager, and Rebecca Shavey, a third-year apprentice with the local, about the light show. Sue, can you explain a little bit about the tradition of setting up the lights in the park? We put it on for the community as kind of a way that we give back as a seasonal gift, especially with COVID last year. We saw record numbers of people driving through Olin Park and just enjoying that in a safe environment. What does it take to put the lights on? It's something that takes a lot of preparation to do. Starting in June with our retirees and some other volunteers that help make sure the displays are good to go. The setup takes about two weeks. So like I said, we have over 55 displays this year. Lights go on tomorrow, and then that runs through January 2nd, dusk till dawn. It's a good opportunity for our apprentices to get out there to be part of giving something to the community. Speaking of apprenticeships, Rebecca, you are an apprentice, and did you help work on setting up the displays? This year was a little bit different for me. I did sustain a knee injury, so this year I actually worked with a lot of the retirees. It is a good opportunity, I think, for any apprentice. We are working with our retirees. They're the ones who have been around the longest. They have a never-ending supply of knowledge, but also just to see how much work actually goes into that, and I think people underestimate how much really goes in but for me this year was just not being able to do the physical work allowed me to kind of learn a lot more of the actual electrical portion and it's been a great experience. What does actually go into planning the thing and then putting everything together? This year you know they redid a lot of the electrical panels any of the bad strings of lights, if sockets are bad, they're replacing them. I and mean, this is months of testing each one of those displays, changing things out. They redid relays, those controllers. When there's like a little light show, it's programmed. I know this year, I think they they have new displays. They've redone some displays. There's always some kind of repairs that need to be done. Stuff gets bent or broken. They spend months of welding and restringing lights and Sue, why don't you talk about what might be different with this year's display? Well, I think one thing that they've brought back this year that a lot of people have asked for is they had for many years a memory tree. So people could purchase an ornament on there to either remember someone. So that is something that people have missed over the last few years. I know that they were working on some of the archways bit of a winter wonderland that people are going to see when they come. Starting in 2009, we went 100% green with LED lights. So that saves um, 82% reduction in our energy usage. Do either one of you want to give a shout out to folks to go through the Fantasy and Lights at Olin Park? I'm actually really hoping to be there tomorrow night with my children. I have four of them for the lighting ceremony. I definitely would recommend going through kids, no kids, doesn't matter. It's always going to be a good time and it's very festive and good for the holiday spirits. Tell me a little bit about the lighting ceremony that's going on tomorrow. Uh, It is open to the public. So really lighting ceremony is just when we're going to go and turn all the power on and everything's going to come on. So it is 
officially opening tomorrow evening to the public. It is a free event. There are exit booths that people can make a donation if they would like, pick up a candy cane and a dog treat. We do get donations and the, we do give that back into the community by providing this display every year and then by also giving to various community organizations inside of the Madison area. The money that's collected is a joint fund between the Contractors Association and the local union. We'll get requests from different organizations like the UW Burn Center. We do things through that committee to Habitat, small donations in the community and and larger donations. That was Sue Blue of IBEW Local 159. The Holiday Fantasy and Lights opening ceremony is tomorrow, Saturday, November 13th, starting at 4.45 p.m. at Olin Park in Madison. Ellen LaLuzerne reported for Labor Radio. A union election at three Starbucks shops in Buffalo, New York, began this week after attempts by the company to delay delivery of ballots failed. If the vote is successful, it would be the first union representation the company has seen in its history. Sean Hagerup discusses the lead-up to the election. Workers at three separate Starbucks stores in and around Buffalo, New York, are expected to begin voting by mail this week on whether they want to be represented by Workers United, an affiliate of the Service Employees International Union. If victorious, they would be the first among Starbucks' national franchises to be represented by a union. The stores won a victory in front of the National Labor Relations Board earlier this month, before ballots were sent out. The board concluded in their ruling that employees at the three Starbucks stores can hold separate elections. This means that workers only need a majority of votes cast at a single location to form a union. The company had argued that employees at all 20 Buffalo area stores should vote in a single election. There are about 128 employees at the three stores that will vote, according to the board's announcement of that decision. Quote, it's been disappointing to see Starbucks working overtime to try to stop us from organizing, but today's decision is a big win, and soon we're going to have an even bigger victory when we vote our union in, said Michelle Eisen, an 11-year veteran of Starbucks in Buffalo and a member of Starbucks Workers United, the union organizing group. The company has denied that it was seeking to delay the elections and argued that workers at all 20 stores should vote together because they can work at multiple locations and because upper level managers oversee decisions across a range of stores. The labor board official and acting regional director rejected those arguments. Starbucks Workers United has the backing of the broader Workers United Union, which represents 86,000 U.S. and Canadian workers in food service, textiles, and other industries. Ballots were mailed out November 10th and are expected to be returned by December 8th. The board will subsequently count the ballots on December 9th. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. And now for an important announcement. Madison's favorite disco funk band, VO5, is hosting a free dance party to celebrate all of our city's healthcare workers and support nurses at UW Hospital who are in a union organizing campaign. UW nurses are calling for a union voice so they can advocate for themselves, their families, their patients, and our community. Join nurses, caregivers, and supporters from across our city for a festive evening of mingling, dancing, and getting funky. Required for entry, proof of full vaccination, physical card, or printed copy showing final doses at least 14 days prior to this event, or negative COVID-19 test, 
taken within 72 hours prior to this event. This is at the High Noon Saloon, 701 East Washington Avenue in Madison, this Wednesday, November 17th. Doors open at 6.30 and VO5 starts at 7.30. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Bert Zipperer, and we'll see you all Wednesday at the VO5 event for UW Healthcare Workers. Meanwhile, thanks to editors Frank Imspeck and Ellen Lalo-Zurn, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Gaboski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Hum, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks and happy birthday to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of the IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Victoria Gutierrez. We all also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts. Oh, yeah.